You guys were just getting into the music and it ended. Yeah. Uh, well, if you love that uh, sermon bumper, you can uh, never hear it again. I don't know. Uh, so I hope you enjoyed it this one last time. Um, I knew I was in trouble immediately. 5.45 a.m. and the alarm clock went off. I was 20 years old. When you're 20 years old, the alarm clock is not supposed to go off at 5.45, right? There's this sort of a thing when you're a college age that you do not get up before the sun gets up. That's kind of the idea. Um, my plan was I don't get up till the sun is somewhere near the middle of the sky. That's how my college years were. So when that alarm went off at 5.45 and I was fumbling and reaching and trying to turn it off, and even as I was banging on the clock trying to get it to stop ringing, I knew that I was going to hate myself. I was cursing myself before I got out of bed because I realized that I had signed up for a 7 a.m. college class. <laughs> and there was a reason I did this. Um, I went to junior college for two years before I transferred to the university. This was my second year. It was the end of my second year. I had to finish up my AA so I could go on to the university, and there had been a class that I had put off the entire time, and it was required, and I kept trying to find a way to get around it. I thought, hey, what if I take two PE classes? Can I skip physics? And they're like, no, I'm like, physical education, physics, it's kind of the same. No. So they made me take physics in order to graduate, and I'm just not a math and science guy. That is not my thing. And so I had been putting it off and putting it off and putting it off. And now if I didn't take it this semester, I was not going to graduate. And it was only offered at 7 a.m. So there I was, Tuesday, Thursday, 7 a.m. I had to go to this class. Um, I had saved it for last. And the first day that I got there, it was wonderful because you could actually find a parking place on a college campus at 7 a.m., which is good. <laughs> And I got there, and I made my way into the classroom, and I thought, I can do this, I can do this. And I got my notebook out and my pencil, and then the professor went to the front of the class, and he said, I'm going to be using the overhead projector, so I'm going to turn off the lights. Yeah, right? You guys have a hard enough time staying awake when I'm preaching and all the lights are on. We're going to be having strobe lights put in just to keep you guys awake. And I had to sit in this classroom with the lights off, and by the time he was 10 minutes into his lecture, you could not hear what he was saying over the snoring in the room. We were all in the same boat. We were just dying. And um, but we had to take it. We had to get through it. Uh, it was going to be a really, really long semester. Some of you guys um, are getting to the end of this summer and this summer love series in 1 John, and you're thinking, man, this has been a really long series. When are we going to be done with this? You know, Pastor Byron preached last week on verse 21 of chapter 5, and I looked closely, and I saw there are no verses after that, and I thought, okay, finally, we're going to hear something different this week. Well, you're wrong. You're not going to hear anything different this week. What we're going to do is we're going to wrap up 1 John. We've been studying 1 John all summer long, and if you remember back to your school days, when you take a class... You do the reading and you listen to the lectures and you do your projects and you get all the work turned in and all that kind of stuff. And then in the last week of school, what do you have? Tests, Tests right? You have final exams. So um, you're going to be taking your final exam today in the book of 1 John. And we've been saying all summer that John wrote 1 John 
as sort of a lie detector test for Christians to sort of give us a clue as to whether we're really in the faith or whether we're just sort of playing this game. And we all know that it is entirely possible to come to church every week and, you know, have a a little fish on the back of your car and say all the right things and all of that kind of stuff and be really religious without really knowing Jesus, right? And that's what John's been talking about this whole time. And, and um, last week, Pastor Byron got us in verse 21 of chapter 5 and said, listen, uh, get all the idols out of your life. And we closed the book, and that was it. But here's the thing. If you learned everything that was in this book of 1 John, and you still don't pass the test, it's meaningless. In that class... Uh, we quickly devised a plan. None of us wanted to be there at 7 o'clock. None of us could stay awake with the lights out. And so we decided, since it was a Tuesday-Thursday class, half of us would come on Tuesday and the other half would come on Thursday. Then we would share notes. At least we could sleep in one of those days, right? And that was our plan. Um, And that's kind of how we got through it. None of us understood any of it. None of us, we were all completely lost. There wasn't even one smart kid for all of us to hate. We, We were all miserable in this class, right? And we got to the end and we took final exams. And you talk about a horrible day. I don't graduate if I don't pass this class. And I don't know anything more about physics than I did on the day that I walked into the class at the beginning of the semester. And so I did what everybody else did. I, took, I, I tried to come up with a pattern that looked pretty on the bubbles, and I <laughs> filled in what I thought might work, right? And everybody did the same thing. And the test got graded, and they came back, and, and the professor said, well, I'm not sure how to say this, but the highest grade on the final was 58%. So I've decided to grade on a curve. Now, he did this to save his job, right? Because if everyone fails, you're a bad teacher. That was, I'm sure, why he did it. I don't care why he did it. He's the greatest man in the world as far as I can tell. All I know is I got like a 44 on my final and passed physics, and and here I stand with a master's degree. God is good. (laughs) Right? So somehow I graduated, but here's the thing. That doesn't make me a scientist, does it? See, here's what we have to understand. We've been in 1 John for all of these weeks, and we've been seeing John calling us to a higher standard and saying, you know, Christianity is not really this watered-down thing that all of you have made it out to be. It's a real life-changing endeavor. And we've been hearing it and hearing it and hearing it. Uh, But guess what? God does not grade on a curve. And so today we're going to take a test and see how well we did in our Summer of Love class. But before we do, if you have a cell phone with you, take it out. Come on, cell phones, cell phones, and most of you already have it out using it for your Bible or or texting your friends or whatever you're doing. Um, I want you to take out your phone and press the camera and then do the part where it turns around and faces you, and I want you to take a selfie. Yeah, just take a selfie. You can do it. If you're over 60, get someone to help you. They'll help you. <laughs> right? But, okay, there we go. My kids tell me I take horrible selfies. I don't know why they say that. Sometimes you can see part of my head in them. I don't know why they say that. But, all right, put your phones away. 
Don't send that to anybody or post it on Facebook. Here's the reason I asked you to do that. I want you to remember something as we take this test. I want you to remember as you see the questions come up from 1 John on the screen and you try to figure out like how things are going for you, I want you to remember that the book of 1 John is not a set of binoculars for you to check out everybody else's life. It's a mirror for you to check out your own life. And this selfie is just a little reminder to you that sometimes we got to turn and look at ourselves, right? And sometimes we got to let God's word really speak to our lives and, and we got to ask ourselves some really tough questions. So this is not about the person sitting next to you or that person who didn't make it here this morning who really needed to hear this sermon. This is about me. It's about you. It's about us taking this seriously. So I want to begin before we get into the actual test by reading to you from the book of 2 Corinthians. If you've got your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to 2 Corinthians. You will find it conveniently located in your New Testament after 1 Corinthians. And go to 2 Corinthians chapter 13, the very last chapter. Now, Paul has written multiple letters to the Corinthians, two of which we have in our Bible, 1 and 2 Corinthians. He refers to other letters that he wrote as well. But as far as we know, this is the last thing that he wrote to them. Okay, so Paul, knowing that this is the last thing he's going to write to them, here's some things he needs to say to them that they really need to hear. And when it comes right down to it at the end, here's what he says. Chapter 13, 2 Corinthians, verse 5. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail the test. So apparently, according to the Apostle Paul, there are tests, ways for us to evaluate whether our own faith is genuine or whether we're just playing games, whether we are what we're so often uh, accused of being, just more hypocritical Christians, or whether Jesus is real in our lives and is living in us and is Lord of our lives and our lives are therefore being transformed. And he says, I want you to test yourselves. I want you to examine yourselves to see whether you're really in the faith. I know you're on the membership roll. I know you come every Sunday. I know you volunteer for the, what would they have had? Not a coffee bar. Uh, coffee bar. I know you're doing all that stuff, but are you really of the household of the faith? So today we're going to ask some hard questions in the form of a test. Question number one, am I walking in the light? This is all from 1 John. What I'm doing with this test is I'm just giving you a summary of 1 John and the questions that he's asking us. If we go to 1 John chapter 1 and verse 6, this is the beginning of the test. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, in my house, um, we, we have this big bedroom. Before we bought the house, the people remodeled and they added on a room in the bottom and then they doubled the size of the master bedroom. So... Christy and I have this huge bedroom, and on this side over here, there's a, the bed is over here, and then there's, there's like a step down from where the bed is, and then you walk all the way across a long area, and then there's a bathroom on the other side, okay? 
So this didn't used to be an issue for me, but as I get older, I'm finding that sometimes I have to get up in the middle of the night, right? And so I get up in the middle of the night, and I am always blessed because the people who did the remodel on our house had this brilliant idea, and their idea was, we're going to build in a nightlight in the bathroom. So in the ceiling of the bathroom, there's built in this little light, and it's not bright enough to where it bothers you or keeps you awake, but it is bright enough that when you wake up in the middle of the night, you can find your way because I have to step down a step just to get where I'm going, right? So I am thankful for that nightlight. A few days ago, it burned out. Yeah. So if you see bruises on me, you know why. Um, I have found that it is much better to travel in the light than it is to travel in the darkness. That's what I have learned. Um, there's some twisted ankles and some bruised shins when you travel in the darkness. That's what I have learned. And, and that's what basically John is saying. Listen, as Christians, light is sort of the symbol of the Christian life. Jesus is the light of the world. And he says to us as his followers that we become the light of the world. And that we're, uh, he's supposed to shine through us. So the question here is, how is your life characterized? Is it characterized by walking in the light? I'm not asking if you ever stumble. I'm not asking if you ever wander off the road a little bit. That's part of what it is to be human, and we're all still struggling. But what is your life characterized by? Is it characterized by light, or is it characterized by darkness? Can people who know you tell that you know him? That's the question. Or is it just your religious philosophy? Is it just a cultural thing to be a Christian? Who are you when nobody's looking? And could people tell? I want to show you a picture. See if you guys recognize this person. Who is that? Who? Pigpen. Everyone knows, right? Did anyone think it was Lucy? Anybody think maybe it was Charlie Brown? I mean, they all look alike. They got the round heads and the, they look pretty much all the same, right? How did you know it was Pigpen? Because there's a cloud of dust around him everywhere he goes, right? You can always tell him because there's never a, uh, there's never a, um, a cell in any of Schultz's drawings that include Pigpen that doesn't have a cloud of dust. Wherever he goes, his dust goes with him. Does the light of Christ go with you? That's what John's asking us. That, that when you enter into a situation, do you shed more light in the situation or do you bring more darkness? When, when you deal with somebody who's hurting, are they glad to have bumped into you at a time like that or do they wish they hadn't seen you? Are you bringing light to the situation? Are you walking in the light? When people see you, do they see Jesus? told you it's going to be a hard test. Number two, how do I deal with my sin? And I want you to notice, I worded this carefully, how do I deal with my sin? I know we know about other people's sin. I get that. I'm not asking you how you voted on the gay marriage initiative. That's not what I'm asking here. I'm asking about your sin. Not the sin that somebody else has that makes you so sick. I'm asking about your sin. If we're going to look in the mirror, let's look in the mirror. Look at 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. 
If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. I think one of the greatest chapters in all of Scripture is found in the book of Psalms. So turn to Psalms, and I want you to find Psalm 51. And this is one of those chapters, one of those passages of Scripture where if you've been a part of this church for any length of time, you will say, man, he talks about this passage a lot. The reason I talk about this passage a lot is because I think it is a roadmap for us in a certain part of our lives. And so when you get to Psalm 51, here's what you're going to find. There's a heading to the psalm, and it tells us who wrote it, King David, and when it was written, what were the circumstances of life when he wrote it. He wrote it right after Nathan the prophet came to him and confronted him about his sin. Now, what was his sin? Oh, he had plenty. At this season, his sin was that he had committed adultery with the next-door neighbor, and she ended up pregnant. And when she ended up pregnant, he thought, i got to cover this thing up. His, her husband was a soldier, and she brought him, he, David brought him home from the front lines thinking that he would spend time with his wife and then go back and assume the baby was his. It didn't work that way. He wouldn't even go home. He wanted to be back out on the front lines, and he went back onto the front lines, and David had him killed. So, adultery, conspiracy, murder, and more cover-up. Now what he does is he goes and marries this poor dear widow woman who happens to be pregnant and is heroic in the way that he comes and sort of adopts her into his family. What a guy, right? And Nathan, the prophet, is sent to David by God and basically Nathan says, God knows exactly what you did. And you can hide it from everybody else, but you're not going to hide it from God. And at that point, David's heart breaks, and he comes under conviction, and he goes into seclusion, and he begins to pray, and he records for us part of his prayer in Psalm 51. This is a man who's convicted of sin, and I just want to read the first four verses. I encourage you to read the rest of it on your own when you get home this week. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Man, there is no beating around the bush right there, is there? I've sinned, he says. He says, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only, I have sinned. There's no yeah but here. There's no if only. There's no it's not like that. There's no it wasn't my fault. There's no blame shifting, no finger pointing. There's no the devil made me do it. It's just, oh God, I have sinned. Help me. And he cries out to God and deals with his sin directly. And the rest of the, cha- the, rest of the chapter is, a, is just a, 
it's a primer on what to do when you get caught up in sin and how to, how to deal with it with God. Of course, there is another way to deal with our sin, and we have examples of that in Scripture too. Go to Genesis chapter 3, and we'll use the first sin as an example. Because in Genesis chapter 3, you guys know the story. God says, don't eat of this one tree. Of course, they both eat of the tree. And before you put too much blame on Eve for eating of the tree and bringing it to her husband, you have to understand that the scripture says her husband was with her when she was tempted, with her when she ate, and with her when he ate. This was a group deal. They did this together, okay? And here's what happens. Once they eat and they have sinned, for the first time ever, the scripture says they knew they were naked and they were ashamed and they find coverings for themselves. Guys, shame and sin go hand in hand. And what our world system tells us today is that you can sin without shame. And it also tells us we should be ashamed even when we haven't sinned. See, the enemy has twisted the whole thing up, but sin and shame go together. They've sinned and they're ashamed. So what are they doing? They're hiding from God. Look at verse 8, Genesis chapter 3. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves for the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Now, that's a pretty straightforward question, right? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? That's an easy question. Verse 12, the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Wow. The woman whom you gave to be with me. Listen, God technically, technically I may have nibbled, okay? But let's get this clear. Let me tell you who made dinner. It was her. It was the woman. She gave me this fruit and I ate it. And by the way, which woman? The woman you gave to me. I did not ask for this woman. I took a nap. I woke up. Bang. There she was. And you decided I needed this woman. And what does she do? She gives me this fruit. Now I'm all naked and the whole thing's embarrassing. Right? That's his answer. And so God says, so that's very interesting, Adam. You sit quietly. I'm going to talk to Eve. Verse 9, then the Lord God called to the, um, uh, no, I'm sorry, verse uh, 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Well, okay, so technically, I, I ate, but there's this serpent. You didn't tell me anything about that. There's this serpent, and by the way, who made the serpent? God. All of this is your fault, God. First of all, you put the tree here. You put the woman here. You put the serpent here. We were doing just fine, right? This is not our fault. You really should give us a pass on this. Now, what is God's response? A curse upon the man, a curse upon the woman, a curse upon the family, and a curse upon the serpent. And we've all been living with this curse ever since. It turns out that sin is kind of a big deal. And the way you deal with it 
is kind of a big deal too. John says, we need to deal with our sin the right way. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So how do you deal with your sin? More like David, hey, it's you know just one of those uh, things that I own. I have to take credit. I have to take blame. I'm going to go to God. I'm going to ask God to make it right. I'm going to humble myself and lay myself out before a holy God and ask for his mercy. Or do you take the Adam and Eve approach, which is, hey, look, you can't really blame us for this. This is not really my fault. If it hadn't been for this or this, I would have never done this. And it's not that bad anyway. In fact, the culture says it's really okay and blah, 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 blah. Do you, I mean, how much patience does God have? Shouldn't he have slapped us all a few times by now? How do you deal with your sin? John says that we need to deal with our sin according to the way that God calls us to, confession and repentance. Number three, is my life marked by obedience to God? This is back to 1 John now. 1 John chapter 2, and pick it up in verse 3. By this we know that we've come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. The one who says, I've come to know Him and does not keep His commandments is a liar and the truth is not in Him. But whoever keeps His word, in Him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in Him. God says, I expect you to take my commands seriously. Now again, I, I want to just reiterate this over and over. The whole theme of 1 John, he's not talking about perfection. The standard that God gives us is be holy as I am holy. And yet he, he makes, uh, he makes um, a way for us because we continue to fall short. But that doesn't change the standard. But he's saying, I'm talking here as you look for the question, am I really in Christ? He's saying this is about the characteristic of your life. Not about a bad day, not about a bad mistake, not about um, a time when you messed up or an area that you continue to struggle in. Listen, I'm going to put it this way. Um, Christians struggle with sin and cling to God. Non-Christians cling to sin and struggle with God. Okay? That's what he's talking about here. Are you, are you struggling with your sin? Are you trying to take my commandments seriously? Are you trying to put into practice the things that I have called you to do? Is my life marked by obedience to God? Number four, how am I doing at loving others? How am I doing at loving others? First John chapter 2, verse 9, the one who says he's in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8 say that uh, love is of God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Uh, he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Right? So, beloved, let us love one another. How are we doing at loving? Of course, it's a huge theme throughout 1 John. That's why we called the series the Summer of Love. But here's the bottom line. Jesus said, John chapter 13, verse 35, Jesus said this, They will know you are my disciples by your what? Love. 
They'll know you're my disciples by your love. It's kind of the mark of the Christian. It's the overarching characteristic of the Christian life. So ask yourself some questions. Do I live to be a blessing to others and to God? Or do I use people and God to be a blessing to me? See, if I'm not living in love, there's a huge hole in my religious life. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, uh, before it gets into that definition of love that we're all so familiar with, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 1 through 3, it says, I can speak in tongues and prophesy and have power, but if I don't have love, I am a clanging gong or a crashing cymbal. If I do not have love, I am nothing, it says. So we could talk about your spiritual gifts all day long. We could talk about what you bring to the table and all the nice things you do for people. We could talk about your knowledge and your wisdom and your insight and how you could quote the scripture in Greek and Hebrew. If you don't have love, you don't have Jesus. That's what he's saying. We got to take it seriously. We don't get to give ourselves a free pass. And guys, there's a whole bunch of people out there that are writing theologically profound articles and books and things like that who don't love people. And it makes you wonder what's going on in their hearts. Number five, do my priorities reflect eternal values? 1 John 2, 15. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. It's a question of priorities. What do I value? What do I prioritize above all else? Are you living to satisfy your flesh or are you living to please your God? That's the question. Do you love the temporary things that can make you feel good for a minute? Or do you love the eternal God who says that he, he will give you eternal life and treasures in heaven? See, here's the thing. The better you know God, the more you become aware that he's everything and everything else is nothing. That's why Paul said, I count it all rubbish. I'm just pressing on toward the goal of Jesus Christ. I just want to be with Jesus. I just want to know Jesus. I just want to please Jesus. And you know what? That means I'm going to have to leave some baggage behind. And people are going to be thrilled because they love the kind of baggage that we're leaving behind. The things that used to have our heart and we leave them by the side of the road, boy, people come and pick those up and they become their idols. We have, a, we have a society, a world that is just bowing down to idols of temporal things. Man's applause, money, power, sex, you name it. The world's like, gotta have it, gotta have it, gotta have it. You gotta have Jesus, guys. That's what you gotta have. And when we get that straight, it changes the trajectory of our whole lives. So what do you value the most? Number six, who is Jesus in my life? Look at verse uh, 22. We're still in 1 John chapter 2. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? Who is the Antichrist? The one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father, and the one who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. Guys, look. We live in a time and a place and a day and age 
when Jesus is becoming the most offensive word in our vocabulary. The reason Jesus is so offensive is because he's so exclusive. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, that has a tendency to piss people off. There's a lot of people mad at Jesus because of that claim. He claims the right to be the one who determines right and wrong, no matter how I feel about it. He claims the right to my worship, as we, as we sang today. He is a jealous God, jealous toward us. He actually wants us to be completely devoted to Him. And that's offensive to people who are devoted to other things. But here's what it comes down to. One question. Jesus asked it of His disciples. Who do you say that I am? Who am I to you? The only way to be right with God is to be in a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. He is the way, not a way. He is the truth, not a truth. He is the life, not a life. He is the Messiah, not a Messiah. And in John chapter 5, verse 10, 1 John chapter 5, verse 10, he says it this way, The one who believes in the Son of God has a testimony in himself. The one who does not believe in God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. The presence of Jesus as Lord in my life changes everything. And if you, when observing your own life, are not able to recognize the presence of Jesus in your life as Lord as well as Savior then you really should be asking this question that John asks us, or that Paul tells us to ask in 2 Corinthians 13. Am I really of the household of the faith? Last question. You enjoying this test so far? Last question. Do I bow down to Christ or do I bow down to idols? And this is what we saw last week, chapter 5, verse 21. Little children, stay away from idols. Get him as far from your life as possible. And it's so funny because, you know, if you were here last week, Pastor Byron was preaching on this, and, and he says, you know, Doug gives me just one verse, like seven, eight words here. That's all I have. i got to do a whole sermon out of this. Listen, Byron, the reason I gave you that verse is because if I would have taken that verse, it would have been a 26-week series. That's why. Because there are so much depth, and he did such a great job of helping us to understand. An idol is not simply defined as some graven image that people in the jungle somewhere bow down before. But there are so many different things that could be idols in our lives. Here's the deal. Jesus says, I alone get the throne of your life. That's the deal. And, and if you're fighting Jesus for the throne of your life all the time, or if you've placed some other idol that you love more than Jesus on the throne of your life, you should really, really be looking in the mirror and questioning and saying to yourself, listen, is this just something I'm struggling with or is this something I've given myself to? Because Christians give themselves to Jesus. It's an exclusive thing. Well, there's your test. How'd you do? When you take God's word seriously, it can be tough, right? It's a little painful. But what do you do when the person looking back at you from the mirror is not who he ought to be? Is not who she ought to be? Sin is real. 
And it really ruins everything. It really separates us from God. And it doesn't matter how much society tries to rewrite morality. There is only one God and He is the source of right. There is only one God and He is the judge of wrong. And we really will all individually stand before Him and give an account one day. And you don't get to take your mom with you and you don't get to take your Sunday school teacher with you. You will stand before God and He'll say, why were you hiding from me? And you'll say, I was ashamed. And we're all going to have a hard conversation with God one day. But He says that if we're washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, He will say, enter into your rest. Right? But guys, we have to take this seriously. God takes sin seriously. Sin is so serious that it costs Jesus everything. And, and I'm, I'm going to read a passage to you that some of you are going to not want to hear the rest of the sermon when you see this. Some of you are going to be so angry. You're going to say, how, could, how can you be so judgmental? So here's the deal. I'm about to read you this passage. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, okay? So we're going to go there, turn there. Um, but before I do, let me just say, this is written by the Apostle Paul, and I'm literally reading it to you word for word. So complaints go to apostlepaul at gmail.com, okay? <laughs> not to me. Here it is. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That is a very offensive statement. You know, sit here and tell me some people are going to inherit the kingdom of God and some are not, that the unrighteous people will not inherit the kingdom of God. And who are you to determine who's righteous and who's not? Well, let me read on. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And I need to point something out. It doesn't say people who sometimes steal. It says thieves. It doesn't say someone who had too much to drink. It says drunkards. It doesn't say somebody who's fighting against lust. It says fornicators. We're talking about life-encompassing sins. The kinds of sin where I have given myself to the sin to where I can be identified according to my sin, which, by the way, is very much in vogue in our culture today, right? People, people actually want to be known for what the Bible calls sin, okay? And, and it's a daunting list, and it has everything from fornication to uh, thieving to being covetous to being a drunkard. And, and these are life-dominating sins. Today, they're not called that. Today, they are called syndromes or addictions. But the Bible calls them life-dominating sins. And he says that those people whose lives are dominated by sin instead of dominated by the things that John gives us in 1 John will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Send your complaints to Paul. That's what it says. But thank God. God, that's not the last verse in the passage. Verse 11, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Such were 
some of you. Circle it, highlight it, star it, that word were. You know what it means? It means you can be a former drunkard, or we use the term alcoholic today. You could be a former addict. You could be a former homosexual. You could be a former thief. You could be a former liar, but you need to be transformed from the inside out. And the only way that happens is to be in relationship with Jesus Christ. And when you're in relationship with Jesus Christ, you bet that's going to happen. He makes us new. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So when we look at a list like this, we're, we're, we're not talking about whether or not you're struggling against sin. We're talking about people who have given their lives into this sin, who not only commit such terrible acts, but actually um, you know, cheer for it, march in the streets for their right to do it. That's what he's talking about. It's pretty convicting to take a test like this. Pretty convicting to take a good, hard look at your own life, to, to really peer in at your own heart, to to closely examine your own soul. None of us has it all down. We're all struggling. Nobody's perfect. But there comes a time when we all have to stop and decide this basic question. What are you going to do with Jesus? Because he says, I'm either Lord of all or Lord not at all. Those are the only two options. Are we going to come under the lordship of Jesus Christ and let our lives be marked by things like love and grace and compassion and truth and obedience and faith? Or are we going to come under the authority of the flesh and our idols and let our lives be marked by the things that are listed here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and other places that we can find similar lists? What are we going to do with Jesus? And, I, and, and in all seriousness... You may have been a church person for the last 50 years and the Lord may be showing you through 1 John, I'm not in Christ. I'm just in church. If so, this is the best day of your life. This is the day everything changes because God reaches out with grace and says, listen, I love you. It's not too late. Come to me if you're weary. Come to me if you're burdened, and I will give you rest. Come to me if you're overwhelmed, and I will give you life. And some of us, maybe right today, just have to wave the white flag of surrender to God and say, I have been fighting you for so long, and I just give up, God. I want what you want. I want you to be my Lord. And we just have to lift our hands and surrender and say, yes, Lord. If that's where you are today, I just encourage you. That's a transaction you just make in your heart with God. You don't have to jump through some religious hoops. All you have to do is confess to God that you're a sinner, accept his free gift of grace, and give him the keys to your life to be Lord. And he comes in and he changes everything. And you can put yourself on that list where it says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of God. But if you really are a child of God and you know that you're a child of God, yes, you struggled. Maybe you didn't get 100% on the test we just took. If you did get 100% on the test we just took, you failed for cheating anyways. <laughs> but, but you know that you know him and you know that you're, you're right with God, but, but you're still struggling. If you really are a child of God, I have some really encouraging 
words for you. And I'm not going to ask you to even turn there. In fact, I'm going to ask you to put down your notes, put down your Bibles, put down your devices, whatever it is you're using, and just set it down and listen. And, and I'm going to ask Ricky to come because what we're going to do is we're going to share in the Lord's Supper together in a moment. And this, this celebration of the bread and the juice is something that's been going on in the body of Christ for 2,000 years. Jesus first served his own disciples. He broke the bread and he said, this is my body which is given for you. He took the wine and he shared it with them. He said, this wine is the blood, the new covenant in my blood, not about works, but about grace. And he said, as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. As children of God who struggle, yes, we struggle, but we're invited to the table. And so in a moment, you're going to get a chance just to come forward. You'll see there's four tables all around the platform here. You can go down any aisle and you'll come to a table and you can just serve yourself the, the bread and the juice. Uh, you just tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the juice and then partake. But before we do, you may want to just close your eyes and listen. Romans, beginning in chapter 7, verse 21. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. But I see a different law in my members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. And so the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind of the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, Yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. 
For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God and of children, heirs also, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. You're no longer slaves to fear. You're no longer under condemnation. For in Christ there is no condemnation. The price has been paid. He became man so he could die for you. His body, the sacrifice, his blood, the cleansing agent to wash away our every sin. He did it because he loves you. And he says you're a child of God if you've submitted to his lordship and a joint heir with Jesus. How awesome is our God. So in a moment, we're going to pray. And when we pray, when we're finished, I'm just going to invite you to just at your own pace, find a table and come and serve communion to yourself if you're a follower of Jesus. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus and you're just trying to figure all this stuff out, don't worry about it. It's no pressure. You don't need to do this. It has no meaning to those of us who are not followers of Jesus. But for those of us who follow Christ, this is an opportunity to celebrate. There is now, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Father, we come to you with all of our needs, all of our scars, all of our weaknesses, all of our struggles. We don't claim to have it all together. We claim to desperately need you. But Father, we also claim the blood of Jesus Christ. It cleanses us from all sin, and we know that because of Christ's sacrifice, you look at us and you say, washed, sanctified, justified, glorified. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for the sacrifice. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. May you be glorified now as we celebrate. In Jesus' name, amen. Just come and serve yourself.